Well, hello everyone, it's Jason here. I'm one of the pastors at The Way Church, and I wanna welcome you to today's sermon. I don't know where you find yourself, but it's a delight for our team whenever we hear stories of people being strengthened in their walk with God, discovering more about Jesus and his word through these messages. So just wanted to say hello before we jump in and hope that you enjoy. Oh, friends, it's so good to be with you. I always feel weird coming up after an introduction like that. Sounds makes me sound way smarter than I really am. So don't be fooled. I certainly do not come today uh, as an expert, but more like a witness. A witness who, through some experience, has gotten to see and experience how God meets us in our weakness. And how when we turn to him in those places of vulnerability and weakness, there's this thing that happens where he actually deepens our capacity to hold, to see, and to walk in his goodness. And so my hope today is just to share a bit of my own testimony and dig deep into the scriptures so that we can collectively bear witness to that goodness. Does that sound good? Okay, wonderful. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll give you a sec to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And before we read, let's actually pray and just center our hearts on Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are here with us today. I pray right now that you would actually soften our hearts so that we could receive your truth. Jesus, by your spirit, would you strengthen us in our innermost being to know beyond knowledge your love. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 12, picking up in verse 7, Paul says this. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As a sophomore in high school, life was as good as I thought it could get. The guy that I had had a crush on finally noticed me and asked me to be his girlfriend. I was a two-sport varsity athlete, which I was an athlete at a small Baptist school that didn't have a JV team, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But nonetheless, I was a decent athlete. I was crowned homecoming queen. I was serving as my second term as class president. And to top it all off, at my sweet 16, my uncle in this kind of like iconic movie moment passes me the keys to my very first new used car which was a Chrysler LeBaron convertible. You know how good it is. Oh, mine was white with red leather interior and a charming amount of duct tape to kind of hold it all together, but didn't matter to me. Life was good. In just about every area of my life, it seemed like things were going well, kind of trending up into the right. But then, Just a few weeks after my sweet 16, I found myself in a sterile, very beige doctor's office waiting what felt like forever 
for the doctor to come in and explain why my body was having such a hard time doing really basic things. And the months leading up to that doctor's appointment, I knew that something was off. I started to notice that climbing the three flights of stairs to get up to my classes was really hard. I'd get to the top and kind of look around, like trying to catch my breath of like, is this this hard for everyone else? I was in decent shape. When our team would line up for sprints, I all of a sudden was coming in dead last. And every once in a while, while I would stand and have a conversation with someone kind of out of nowhere, I would fall over. And that falling kept happening to a point where I couldn't write it off as just being a klutz anymore. As I waited for the doctor to come in, I remember giving myself like a little pep talk. Like, whatever it is, girl, you got this. Like no matter how intense the treatment plan might be or how hard things might get, it'll always get better. You got this. But as it turned out, the doctor's diagnosis that she delivered on that cold January day wasn't something that could be cured or even treated at all. At that appointment, the doctor watched me do all kinds of basic activities. She watched me walk. She watched me run. She watched me stand on one foot. She made me sit down on the ground and then stand back up. So I did it once. She said, do it again. I did it a second time. And on the third time, when I was still sitting on the ground, she looked me straight in the eyes. And she started to kind of, with a cautious confidence, to begin to explain what she thought was happening. She thought that maybe I was dealing with a very rare neuromuscular disease. And after a few more months of tests, her educated guess became my new reality. The biopsy report showed that the sudden weakness I'd been experiencing in my body was the result of an untreatable and incurable disease that was slowly deteriorating all the muscles in my body. Turns out there was no amount of effort that I was ever going to be able to exercise to stop or slow down the progression of the nature of this disease. Limb girdle muscular dystrophy, it turned my world upside down. In a matter of minutes, the way that I saw myself walking into the future didn't even include being able to walk anymore. I didn't have the language to articulate it then, but when I look back, my diagnosis was one of those moments. Some of you, are, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those defining moments where you come face to face with the reality of just how fragile life really is. I was being tuned into a fact of life that we tend to avoid talking or thinking too much about, which is this, that we are all way more weak and dependent than we like to think. And I don't mean just physically, I mean in every way. One of the things that I've learned and am continuing to learn to this day is that what we do with that weakness, how we respond to it, has far-reaching implications for our lives. In her book, Daring Greatly, researcher and storyteller Brene Brown says this, to be human is to be vulnerable. For without vulnerability, there is no love, no belonging, and no joy. But why is it, though, why is it that we are so unwilling to admit our weakness or show up vulnerably? She goes on to say this, the difficult thing is that vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you and the last thing I'm willing to show you. In you, it's courage and daring. In me, it's weakness. How many of you have felt that way? Even in my preparation to preach this morning, I had this come to Jesus moment where I was like, shoot, you ever have one of those? It usually gets better, but for me, it starts with, shoot, 
shoot, if I really believe what I'm going to sit up there and preach, I'm going to have to show up to and share some of my own weaknesses. And honestly, there is something terrifying about that. So much of how we relate to our own weaknesses stems from living in the aftershocks of a survival of the fittest mentality. The survival of the fittest mentality which has influenced so much of the way we pursue power and success. We think that in order to succeed in life, that success has to be grabbed and held on too tightly lest someone take it from us. As a result, weakness all too often has been leveraged as an opportunity to take advantage of people in so many heartbreaking ways. So for fear of being victimized or being seen as soft or weak in any way, we respond to what we perceive as weakness by hiding, avoiding, escaping, and isolating. Research shows that our brains are hardwired to protect us. When something messes with our sense of security and balance, our brains go into survival mode, which is a good thing. It's good for us when, say, you come into contact with like a bear or, or an intruder of some kind. But because our brains interpret the experience of vulnerability as a kind of emotional exposure that puts us at risk, that same fight, flight, or freeze response is triggered, and we start looking for the nearest escape route. And we're pretty creative as humans. We don't have too much trouble coming up with all sorts of ways to avoid and escape our weakness. For many of us, our default is distraction. We avoid the ache of our loneliness by packing our schedules full of activities and all kinds of busyness. We try to cover over our insecurities by buying more stuff. We numb the stress and the sadness of our lives with excess food, alcohol, drugs, video games, Netflix, fill in the blank. We try to outpace the pressure we feel to be perfect by doing whatever we can to look like we've got it all together. But the problem with our avoidance and all the ways we try to overcome that looming sense of feeling frail is that eventually it catches up to us. And it ultimately leads to more fear, anxiety, and unhealthy habits. One article from Psychology Today points out how numbing may provide temporary relief, but prolonged numbing can leave us broke, addicted, detached, and distanced from the people who care about us most. We all too often, myself included, friends, we settle for distraction over reflection. I believe it's one of the things that is absolutely robbing us from allowing God to meet us in our weakness with his love, power, and presence. For as Augustine said, wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, O oh God, it is in sorrow, even if it's fixed upon beautiful things. The reality is we are all weak, every single one of us. You don't need a, a diagnosis to tell you that. So the question then that I want us to consider this morning is this. How might our weaknesses be an invitation and an opportunity to experience the power and presence of God in our lives? How might our weaknesses be an invitation and opportunity to experience the power and presence of God in our lives rather than something to be hidden or avoided? This is a question that Paul answers for us in 2 Corinthians 12. Let's read it one more time. 
Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pause there. Paul here, he's pointing to the great paradox of power. You see this all throughout the scriptures. It's a paradox that was a defining and often offensive feature of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus' embodiment of the paradoxical nature of power in the kingdom of God is evidenced all throughout the gospels. I encourage you to just like take a day where you just read all the gospels and take note of how you see power being made perfect in weakness. But for our time, let's look at just two. The first has to do with who Jesus chooses as his disciples. In the first century, when rabbis chose their disciples, they would go to the rabbinical schools and they would look for the best and the brightest. But when Rabbi Jesus chose his disciples, it seems like he intentionally did the exact opposite. Rather than looking for the best and the brightest, it appears that he chose to choose those who seem to be the worst of the worst. Think about it. Peter is constantly putting his foot in his mouth, like constantly. When Jesus is at the peak of his persecution, not just once, but three different times, Peter completely denies ever knowing Jesus. James and John had this bent towards violence and vengeance, and they had such a bad temper that they were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Simon was a zealot who tried to violently overthrow the Roman Empire. Today, we would have labeled him a terrorist. Matthew was a tax collector who in those days had a reputation of being cruel and corrupt because for the sake of their own personal profit, they would extort people to pay way more than what they really needed to. And as such, Matthew would have been considered an outright traitor to Israel. And then there's Thomas, who pretty much had a hard time trusting anything Jesus had to say. (laughs) Yet this is who Jesus chose. For three years, they got more wrong than they did right, and they misunderstood Jesus often. Friends, Jesus' deliberate choice of disciples is a reminder to us that God's power is not made perfect in our strength, but in our weakness. Jesus didn't give up on them. Despite all of their betrayals, Jesus never traded them in. He never upgraded them for more gifted or talented disciples. Instead, he loved them. And that love transformed them, which in turn transformed the world. Acts 4.13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They didn't take note of how gifted they they were. They took note that they had been with Jesus. Their weakness was pointing to the supernatural power of God at work in and then through their weakness. Unschooled, ordinary men. How many of you feel ordinary? Friends, if you feel ordinary, underqualified, or weak, take heart. God delights in displaying his power through weakness. If the disciples aren't convincing enough, think about so many others throughout the scriptures that God did incredible things through. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob lied. Leah was unattractive. Moses had a stutter. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a flirt. Rahab was a prostitute. David cheated on his wife and had a man murdered to cover it up. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was too young. Jonah ran from God. Job went bankrupt. 
The woman at the well was divorced. Paul murdered Christians. Lazarus was dead. He can use any of us. That's not, <laughs> yes, amen. <laughs> this is by no means an encouragement to stay where you are or to get stuck in addiction, but it is just proof that God can literally use anyone, including you. I think that oftentimes the only one disqualifying us is ourselves. I know that's true for me. So often I get in my own way. The other example that we see in the life of Jesus comes from the first line of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, which lays out the way of Jesus that leads to the full and flourishing life that we're all longing for. And that sermon starts with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of downer, honestly. In Matthew's gospel, this moment, this teaching is the very first time Jesus' disciples in the crowd are hearing him teach, and he leads with the line about being poor in spirit. Like, come on, Jesus. You, you could have led with a story to really captivate the crowd's attention by talking about how you just casted out some demons or healed someone from a chronic condition to prove how powerful you really are, but he doesn't. He cuts right to the heart of how it is possible, not just for him, but for us to experience and exercise real kingdom power in the here and now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is about being in constant awareness of how needy you really are. It's about recognizing that we are all spiritually bankrupt before God, utterly powerless to save ourselves. It's about receiving and acknowledging how every good and perfect gift ultimately finds its source in God himself and not in our goodness. Being poor in spirit is about embracing this posture of humility and dependence, remaining keenly aware of our inadequacies and resisting the temptation to hide under the cover of self-sufficiency. In our culture, once you hit a certain age, neediness often is interpreted as a turnoff, something that we should grow out of. And so it can feel for us pretty counterintuitive, unnatural even, to put Jesus' teaching into practice. I remember coming home from my diagnosis was finalized. After coming home from it being finalized in the house, I felt like a funeral home. And the person that everyone was there to grieve over was me. Not specifically me, but a version of me. The version that um, I w was connected to my parents and my siblings' understanding and unspoken hopes of who I might be, what my life might look like one day. All that was so uncertain now. Everyone else's sadness made it hard for me to feel my own, so I didn't. I shut it down. I locked it up somewhere deep inside and I did myself, I did my best to try to prove to myself and to everyone else around me that I wasn't just okay, I was more than okay. And whether I fully realized it or not, I started compensating for the physical and emotional weakness I felt by trying to control every area of my life. Any control freaks in the room? 
You know, you know who you are. <laughs> I thought to myself, sure, I, I probably can't have kids, but I could become the ideal girlfriend. You know, like low-key, fun, funny, kind, smart, pretty popular. And maybe that'll prove to me then and everyone else around me that this whole not being able to walk thing isn't so bad. But ultimately, that ended with a broken heart and a battle with disordered eating. For a while, I was youth group girl. You know, the one that leads and comes to all the things. I think we, maybe we have some youth group girls in the room. You do all the stuff. You're like, Bible study, 6 a.m., I'm there. Summer camp, four years in a row, small group leader, announcement girl. Like, all, all the things. I'm all in. The only thing they wouldn't let me do was be the worship leader. So I just ended up marrying one, you know, settle for the next best thing. I thought, you know, if I could just become a 16-year-old sage that people looked up to and I could be a, a part of helping fix their problems, then maybe my own problems wouldn't feel so big. It wasn't all bad, but it did mean that I was, of course, hiding a lot of things, like some of the things I was, I was doing to try to be the ideal girlfriend, if you know what I mean. Yikes. I was given a platform super young. And I thought the only way to stay there was by trying really hard not to make a mistake and then just cover up the ones that I was making. I remember feeling so afraid of people finding out things that I was really struggling with, lest it be interpreted that my faith really wasn't as strong as they thought. The pressure to stay on that platform was unbearable. Throughout college, I thought if I was just really good at school, if I just worked really hard and got good grades, I'd be strong and successful enough to not have to worry too much about having a disability, as if I could, like, think my way through it. But the harder I tried to prove my way into worth, the more insecure I felt. The faster I tried to outrun my fear of failure, the more anxious I became, driving me only further away from the security and significance I was really longing for. And the more I tried to power my way through in my own strength, the weaker I really became. After getting married, graduating college, and moving to Portland, all the ways I tried to cope with the inevitable progression of my disability, it just it's like they stopped working. And before I knew it, I was 26 years old, waking up in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, at an inpatient trauma rehab facility. The pit of insomnia and anxiety-induced depression I was in was so deep, and I felt so unbelievably stuck. I spent 40 days there, and they were dark my life felt like someone had walked in and turned off all the lights. And the harder and faster I was trying to find the switch, the, the, just the more I was bumping into all the furniture of my life that had been rearranged. All that running from weakness caught up to me. And in that moment, it, there was no escape. What Jesus teaches and what Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians, it helps us see that when we get honest about how needy we really are, when we are emptied of striving, of trying to strong arm our way through life, that emptiness has a way of opening us up to be filled with the power of his presence. When Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh, notice that he calls it a messenger of Satan meant to torment him. 
That word torment means to harass or to literally strike with a fist. When we face weakness or difficulty of any kind, the enemy attaches a message to it. Kind of like when you send an email, you can just attach something right onto it and it's sent with it. The enemy attaches a message to that thorn and it's meant to discourage and disqualify you. He capitalizes on your weakness by attaching a message to it to try and take you out. But God is also at work in our weakness. In his short ebook called On Suffering Lovingly, John Mark, John Mark Comer gets at the heart of God's desired work in our weakness. He says this, as I see it, the primary effect of suffering on our spiritual formation is to set us free from attachments. By attachments, I mean the things we think we need to live a happy life. Suffering has a way of not only revealing our attachments, but of stripping them away and setting us free. For example, if our happiness is attached to our job or our income or our health or our relationship status, when any of that is stripped away, it's emotionally excruciating, a kind of psycho-spiritual torture. But if we release the illusion of control and consent to God's work through our grief and loss, we are set free. Why? Because our attachments are what hold us back from life in God. So what does it look like then to reject the enemy's message that seeks to discourage and disqualify you and me and instead consent to God's work in our weakness? What does that look like? I think Paul in this text gives us a picture and a pathway that leads us into how we can practically engage our weakness instead of escaping it so that we can actually enter into the opportunity of it. Three things. Number one, Paul pours out his heart to God. This is an invitation for us to pour out our heart to God. Paul says this three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. That word pleaded is the equivalent to someone getting down on their knees and begging. Paul is crying out. His his pleading, it paints a picture of his desperation and agony over this thorn in his life. Notice that Paul doesn't try to overcome the pain he's experiencing with blind optimism. He, he, He doesn't bypass the pain and jump straight to that line about boasting. He offers no silver bullets, no three step strategies, or top tips for manifesting happiness. No, he pours out his heart to God. He laments. He laments. He allows his desperation to move him to move him in the direction of God's presence. Instead of avoiding or moving away from God, he moves towards God. Instead of letting bitterness creep in by keeping in his pain, he pours it out to the Lord. The Scottish evangelist and leader of the Hebridean revival, Duncan Campbell, used to preach this. He says, let us be honest in the presence of God and get right into the grips of reality. Have I a vision of our desperate need? Oh, for a baptism of honesty, for a gripping sincerity that will move us. When we get honest, when we get honest and we acknowledge our weakness, it allows that weakness to become like a vehicle that drives us in the direction of God's presence. And there in that posture of dependence with our hands open before him, we are then free to receive the sufficiency of his grace. And how much more might we see the power of God, work, of God at work in our lives, our churches, our families, our communities, if we let our weakness bring us to our knees before God 
makes me wonder what I might be missing, what, what I might not be hearing or seeing because I'm too busy trying to distract myself out of weakness instead of letting it drive me into his presence. Friends, the Spirit delights in the confession of our neediness. He smiles on it, not because he is sadistic in the slightest, but because that confession, that cry is a way of us consenting to the Spirit's work in our lives. It's like a key that unlocks the door for Jesus by his Spirit to be who he said he would be, our comforter, our counselor. Our friend, the one who reminds us of the truth that is often so hard to see when we are deep in the wake of our weakness. Notice, he doesn't tell us what exactly the thorn is. There's lots of speculation of what that thorn was for Paul, but no one knows for sure. And I wonder if that detail is left out on purpose. Maybe it has a way of saying that it, may, it doesn't matter how big or small your thorn might be. Whatever your weakness might be, bring it before the Lord. So first, Paul pours out his heart to God, and then second, he recognizes and receives the true source of strength. Paul says, "My or not Paul, God to Paul, as he's in this posture of crying out before the Lord, the Lord says this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God helps Paul to recognize and receive the true source of strength. Notice that God says my two times. My grace, my power. Whose grace? Whose power is sufficient? It's God's. It's not Paul's. It's not mine or ours or Netflix's or any other distraction that we might try to grab onto. It's his just a few chapters prior to our text, Paul says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The metaphor that he uses here of jars of clay, it might not mean much to us in the here and now, but it was quite familiar to his original audience. 2,000 years ago, there were no banks. And so there was no place for people to put their money. So rich people would hide their money in expensive vases. Turns out that wasn't a very safe strategy because when thieves would break in and steal, they would often grab the most expensive looking vases and they would end up unintentionally stealing the cash inside of them, which was great for them. It was like a two for one special. Not so great for the person who owned the home. So as a strategy to kind of keep their money safe, they started buying cheap pottery and storing their money in uh, the less expensive looking stuff. So Paul uses this image of a great treasure stored in ordinary jars of clay to reveal that God puts his riches, the riches of his spirit in you and me. Let that sink in. He puts his treasure, the power and presence of his spirit in ordinary cracked pots. Too often we get the treasure and the jar confused. We hear stories about heroes of the faith like Mother Teresa or Jonathan Edwards or Bonhoeffer. And we think that they were used because of their gifts and abilities. But if we think about it's about them, then, then friends, we've totally missed it. It's like mistaking the, the wrapping paper of a gift as the gift inside, thinking that the paper is more valuable than the gift. But the truth is that any impact that their lives had wasn't because of their strengths or abilities, but because of the treasure of the Spirit within them and at work through them. Friends, we are the pot, not the power. 
We are the pot, not the power. And God wants to pour the treasure and strength of his spirit into your crack pot. He wants to use you even when you feel weak, broken, vulnerable, afraid, and confused. Ultimately to bring him glory. So Paul's inviting us to pour out our heart to the Lord. To recognize and receive where real strength comes from. And then number three, to boast in our weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The word boast comes from the root word that means neck, which is obviously the part of the body that holds the head up high. So figuratively speaking, to boast in our weakness means to live with our confidence anchored in the character and the promises of who God is. Let that sink in. It's about resting in his unfailing love and his divine wisdom and ability to work all things together for our good and for his glory. Considering our frailty, it's not meant to create despair, but dependence and hope. Hope in the Lord. When Paul said boast in your weakness, it's not about kind of like a sarcastic uh, self-deprivation, What am I saying? Yeah, it's not about sarcastic self-deprivation. It's about recognizing that's in our moment of weaknesses that we are most receptive to the all-sufficiency of God's grace. Ultimately, the pursuit of self-sufficiency has a way of preventing us from receiving and walking in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's this posture of daily dependence that puts the power of God on display. When I finally stopped trying to run away from weakness, I started to see that at the root of all my attempts to cover up and compensate was this toxic combination of fear and shame. Fear and shame that said, if I can't walk, have kids, and be independent and self-sufficient, doesn't that make me more of a burden than an asset? And if so, then wouldn't it just be better? This is my train of thought. Wouldn't it just be better for me and for everyone else if I just didn't exist? I know that is a super intense and dark thought, but that's where it led me. If I had to live disabled in the world, I really wasn't sure if I wanted to live at all. And it was only as I was able to pour out that part of my heart before God to actually acknowledge that that was the thing that at at the depths of my heart that I was feeling and wrestling. Only then as I brought that pain into his presence was I able to receive and start to walk more like stumble into the strength and sufficiency of his grace. This recognition that, that your career can't hold you up. The the status can't hold you up. The money can't hold you up. The accomplishments, the accolades, the academy can't hold you up. The next thrill, the next high, the, the, the next vacation, none of it can hold you up. None of those things are strong enough to hold you up. Jesus alone, Jesus alone, the scriptures say, is our rock and firm foundation. All else is like sinking sand. Just a couple weeks ago, our very best friends gave birth to their first baby. And when we went to the hospital to visit them and I got to hold him for the first time, 
I was struck by how tiny he was. You ever hold a newborn baby and you're like, dang, I was the small one time. <laughs> so tiny. He was so small and so completely dependent upon his parents for literally everything. This is why Jesus says, become like children. Our dependence upon the Father is, is what allows us to say with Paul that when I am weak, then I'm strong. And no one models this posture of humble dependence upon the Father better than Jesus. Oh, he, he didn't just tell us to become like children. He showed us the way. We'll close with this. Jesus, the creator of the universe, came to live among us as a weak and dependent baby. Willingly, he became weak and embraced the limitations of his humanity. He lived out his mission amongst the marginalized and the outcasts of society. He was vilified by powerful religious and governing authorities, and he entrusted himself to God the Father as he died with a crown of thorns on his head. The cross of Christ, friends, is the ultimate moment of power made complete in weakness. Paul said, for to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him. The road to resurrection is through crucifixion. And although his death looked like the enemy had won, it was only temporary. In fact, it was precisely through this act of powerlessness that he overpowered and defeated the enemy for good. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended to his heavenly throne where all the forces of darkness were put under his feet. And he is seated now at the right hand of the Father with all power and all authority. Because of what Jesus accomplished, we friends can partner with him in his kingdom mission and overcome the enemy at work in our lives as we admit our weakness. As we admit our weakness and depend upon him to help us in every area of our lives. Because Jesus rose, we friends can rest in the hope and promise and strength that he gives us, that he will in fact come again and restore all that has been broken. Friends, as vulnerable as it feels to be honest about how fragile and dependent we really are, it is a powerful act that defeats the enemy. So Way Church, may we be encouraged and strengthened in our innermost being as we boldly cry out to God with all our needs and depend on him, our King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, I want to thank you for listening to today's sermon. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors at the Way Church. And if you want to find out more about what's going on in the life of our church or how to get connected more deeply, you can go to thewaychurch.ca. We're so encouraged to hear stories about how these messages have been strengthening people in their walk with God, drawing them deeper in their relationship with Him and in His Word. And so this is love from our team to you. Hope you're doing well today and love to hear from you.